This is Brian Felt, the director of athletics at Seton Hall University, and you are listening to Left Coast Pirates. Let's go Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Michael? You know, Tommy, you ask me that question to start every podcast, and normally I say, doing well. But the other night, I was watching a game from late in the season on my DVR. You know which game it was? It was the comeback versus Marquette at the Rock. The miracle at the Rock? Yeah, yeah, that game, whatever you want to call it, fine. So I, so I get to the point where Sam Hauser hits this like little face-up jumper over Jared Roden, and it gives Marquette a 13-point lead, 59-46. to 46. After that, Q brings up the ball to half court, and you could just see he was like totally dejected. The crowd is like frustrated. There's like groans and moans. He calls timeout, and there's 9.37 to play, and it basically felt like the season was over. You know, they were on track to basically lose their fourth straight. And then for once... I believe the basketball gods favored the Pirates. Do you remember this play? You know, where Miles Powell kind of takes that little fadeaway corner, fadeaway three-pointer from the corner. It clanked off the side of the rim, hit up off the backboard, and then rattled around the basket before kind of going through the net. After that basket, the Pirates went on to close out that game on a 27-5 to run. And in my opinion, it sparked the team to beat Nova at the Rock and take a shot at the Big East tournament title. It was a crazy stretch of five games in an 11-day period in which the fan base kind of fell in love with this team. Now, you and I sit here less than a month and away from the season opening tip, and essentially the entire team is back, the players are maturing, and we have the Big East preseason player of the year to lead the way. But you remember me for a second. Just what if? What if the basketball gods were unkind to Powell's three in the corner? What if Marquette would have weathered the storm of that crazy run? What if... The game ended the NCAA tournament dream of four in a row. You know, it's, it's funny how things turn out in the world of sports, how the bounce of a ball can change the directional course of how this team and program grew. Now, you might not believe me, but you ask me how I'm doing. And my answer, I, I guess it's still doing well. I mean, wouldn't you be as a Pirate fan if you saw how special this team could be and how this season might possibly turn out? Michael, it sounds like you're doing a little bit more than doing well. I got to say, that was a tremendous opening rant, a one for the books, a magnificent way to open up what could be a generational type of season. But I think your narrative is overblown a little bit, but I can appreciate how excited you are. I put a lot of time into that opening rant. Overblown? Overblown? Do you really think this team would be in the same position today if it had not turned the corner in that game? In the big picture, yes. 
Mike, yes, it is a little overblown. And I don't think this season, which again could be that once-in-a-generation season we all talk about, needs it. I know you're going to hit me with all the reasons why you believe that game began what I like to call the miracle at the rock and why it was so important and how it affected the next season. It was a spectacular come from behind game, Michael. It gave us so many great moments and it set up the poop show game at the Madison Square Garden in some regards where we beat Marquette again in a few days. But Mike, at the end of it all, it was just a game. It wasn't a game that won us the Big East title. It wasn't a game that won us the Big East tournament. It didn't get us past the first round of the NCAA again, but it gave us a shot. It kept us alive. It was a desperate team making a desperate run. I loved every minute of it, Michael, but let's keep some perspective. I think you're delusional, flat out delusional. So so let me let me make my counterpoints like you knew I was going to do. That would have been our fourth straight loss and put us at a 7-10 and 10 Big East record at the moment. I mean, the fans probably were going to kind of go off the rails. They were already emotional off of the home loss and missed opportunity against Xavier and a crushing double OT loss down at Georgetown. I mean, our podcasts were being critiqued as glass half empty. You know, these guys are unlistenable because, you know, we had no positive energy about the program. You know, we, we thought things were falling apart. I, I get it. It was supposed to be a be. It was supposed to be a rebuilding year, but you don't think people were going to start to possibly question Kevin Willard that he might not be able to win outside of the core four or the Isaiah Whitehead recruiting class. I, I think that might have kind of happened. I, I think you might have even seen a little bit of could he write the ship from a program perspective when the Sterling Gibbs team that combined with Whitehead and that freshman class kind of completely had that massive losing streak and then went into the garden and got the doors blown off by Marquette. You just don't know. I mean, the reality is if they would have lost that game and got down on themselves and then lost to Villanova, which was also a top 25 ranked team, they finished seven and 11 and that would have put them in ninth place, ninth place in the big East. And you're telling me all of a sudden a team that probably doesn't win 20 games ninth place in the Big East is now going to get the hype for the next season? Mike, you like this hype concept. And I'm going to tell you what reality has here, man. All these points leave you with the same thing, Michael. The same team ready for practically the same schedule. Perhaps we don't get Michigan State in this Gavit Games uh, contest between the Big East and the Big Ten. Maybe they flip us around with the Nova game and we end up going to uh, Ohio State. So maybe the out-of-conference schedule suffers slightly, but it's still one of the toughest in the land. And you know what? Miles Powell doesn't go anywhere. If getting dropped by a Wolford team that laid an egg against the same Kentucky team that we beat doesn't leave him saying, screw it, I'm leaving, the rest doesn't matter. Like you said, it was supposed to be a rebuilding year, and everything else was cream. So if the expectations were met instead of exceeded, what changes his mindset? It certainly doesn't change the NBA executive mindset. As a matter of fact, I'll proposition you this. The Marquette game probably gave him more street cred. That run in the Wolford game probably gave him more street cred. And I'll tell you this, he might not even get invited to some of these places if Seton Hall doesn't go further. 
So what I'm telling you is, is if we ended up with that eighth place that we were picked to get, or that ninth place, which would have been a big disappointment, he doesn't leave. What does that leave us with? Expectations met. The same team coming back, and they're ready for this year to make a name for themselves. I'm glad you went down this path. So I'm going to touch on Miles going pro or Miles, you know, not doing anything different than what he did in a second. I'm sorry. We just got voted preseason Big East regular season champs. Miles got predicted to be player of the year. People jump on the bandwagon when there's positive energy off of what just happened from the season before. If the team doesn't turn the corner and create this positive run down the stretch, I don't think you see the Andy Katz is jumping on the bandwagon, predicting us as a dark horse to make it to the final four. I don't think the coaches take a team that was predicted to finish in eighth place, finished in ninth, and then put their name on the line by voting them to finish number one. Could they have put them in the middle of the pack? Top three, sure. But once again, are we going to sell out the rock? Completely sell out the building for a Michigan State team that wouldn't have even been on the schedule? I don't think so. But I really want to go back to the Miles Powell comment. I think he might not have been here. I think sometimes, regardless of his relationship with Kevin Willard, if the culture of the program is on a, a negative note to end the season, there's a possibility, possibility, he could have explored other opportunities I think his performance prior to that stretch, he had shown that he had big games. I, th I still think he would have gotten the combine invite or not, excuse me, not the combine invite, but you know, the pro day invites. So miles was quoted in Chris McManus's recent article. He says, I was very close to leaving, but coach Willard helped me a lot when I was there and first told him I wanted to do it. He said, okay, well, if you're going to do it, you need to do it like you're staying in. So, Already right there, I had it in my mind that I wasn't coming back to school. I was out there in California getting ready for my pro day, and I just needed somebody to lean on. Coach Willard was the first person I called, of course. I mean, correct me if I'm not mistaken, but there's an undertone there that says he might not come back. There's not 100% without a doubt in those two quotes that, yep, I was there just to kind of get a taste just to kind of see where my stock was at and get some feedback. He, he went in with the mindset that if he got the right answer, I don't know what that is, second round, whatever it was, he could be gone. Okay, Mike, let me ask you. Say we don't win that Marquette game. Does that all of a sudden make Miles Powell's handle better? Does that make his decision-making better? Does that mean he hits more shots at these workouts? No. None of this changes his performance. He was at a certain level, and those NBA teams, and, and, and all of a sudden I'm bashing Miles, or it sounds like it here. That's not what I'm trying to do here. What I'm trying to say is, Mike, you're living in this expectation world where if you don't make it somewhere, I'm going to go to the next level. No, the reality is, Mike, he performs the same level as he goes through these tryouts, regardless of what happened in this season. He wasn't going to the G League. He wasn't going to Russia. He's got plenty of, of examples showing that that's not the way to make it to the league. This wasn't just about Miles Powell. Miles just becomes a piece of the conversation. Who so else doesn't show up, Michael? It's the same team. You want these expectations. You love this Andy Katz giving you these shoulder rubs telling you we're going to be a top 10 team. We're making a Final Four. And I'm telling you what I like. I like performance at the end of the day. 
It's the same team coming back for practically the same schedule, and they're ready to roll. And that's the expectation that's set. Whether you like it or not, what happened down the stretch changed the perception of where the program is and the capability of the other players around Miles Powell. This was not about up, Mike. Who this does, is not. Who does this, it improve? Who it's doesn't improve based on you know, this whole perception thing? You're living in this fantasy world, Mike. So, so if this team finishes in ninth place, you're telling me when they people do their write-ups, other players on other teams like Georgetown and their three freshmen, they're not allowed to improve. Everybody's allowed Mike, to improve. Mike, how does this improve performance? It it gives the writers <laughs> and the fan base the belief that the next step beyond a 20-win season, beyond a first-round loss, has a higher ceiling. If they would have improved off of a ninth place, it would have been maybe they can challenge for a bid. It's a different perspective. Let's, let's, let's pause right there for a second. Right, so, so let's bring it back. Let's get into this perspective. Let's go back to these expectations. Uh, once again, Big East first place by the coaches. Preseason player of the year, Miles Powell. I mean, we haven't had these kind of expectations since back to like the 1992-93 team, the 2000-2001 team, or some of the recent teams we just had. So, so I'm going to ask you a question. How would you feel if I told you that this year's team wins both the Big East regular season, the Big East tournament title, gets a two or three seed, and then somehow loses in an upset in the second round of the NCAA tournament? Okay, so let me set the stage here, Mike, okay? 92-93, my freshman year. I'm a local kid who's just watched Seton Hall make the Elite Eight two years prior, the Sweet 16 the prior year, and I'm coming into school with the deepest, most talented team Seton Hall has seen in the modern era. And you ask me, what do I remember from that season? I remember one thing, Michael, Western Kentucky. Let me give you an idea. We won the Big East Conference outright. We won the Big East Tournament in stunning fashion. We blew out Syracuse by 30 points that game. We were number seven in the country. Terry DeHare not only breaks the Seton Hall scoring record, but the Big East scoring record that year. And what do I remember? Western Kentucky. Hell, we asked Jerry Walker what he remembered most about his senior season, and he immediately said, Western Kentucky. It was disappointing. It was mind-numbing. It was just a gut punch of epic proportions. So you didn't answer my question. Am I, am I here to assume that the answer to my question is if they repeated a similar performance to that year's team that you would also be disappointed? Oh, uh, okay. Heart, oh, heartbroken. Okay. Let, let, let's reflect about last year's team for a little bit and just, just kind of go with me on this, all right? I want you to just answer one of three three answers. One word answer, excited, disappointed, or neutral. I'm going to give you different moments in last year's season, all right? St. Uh, Louis yeah. game. Disappointed. Miami tournament win. Oh, super excited. Kentucky-Maryland games, obviously. Through the roof. Okay. Rutgers win. You know what? Neutral. Okay. January swoon, two DePaul oh, losses. Oh, gut punch. Seven and six, three losses, Xavier, St. John's, and Georgetown to follow when we had an opportunity. Disappointed. Miracle at the Rock, Marquette and Nova wins. Ecstatic. Big East finals loss versus Nova. You know what? At that point, it was quasi-neutral, to be okay. honest. Overall final result of the season. 
you know, it's somewhere, it's, it's not quite excited, I guess, because of how we started that out of conference season, but, but happy. Satisfied. You know, if, I gave, satisfied if I gave you another word, could you say satisfied? I, I, I'll maybe satisfied into it, you know, that All right. middle so point. Why do you feel the way that you did after each one of these moments? I'll tell you why. It's the word expectations. I put an expectation in my mind going into those moments of the season. So and that all kind of leads up to what's going to go on for this year. Based on the hype, how do you want to remember this year's team? Whether the expectations are there or not, Michael, the performance dictates how I feel. Whether whether I was going to feel happy or sad over something, if the performance is there, I'm all right with it. So I don't disagree with you. I, I get that. But to the casual fan, doesn't measuring a Big East title or how high we ranked in the top 25 or does a, a player win individual honors, do you, do you think that matters to the casual fan? Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's, you know, we go into the minutia of all this stuff, but the expectations are, are huge for that casual fan that's going to buy that upper bowl seat against Michigan. And, and you know what? They've got plenty of expectations. I mean, the preseason accolades were just rolling in this year. Uh, Miles Powell, potential All-American. He's on the cover of magazines, which still is important in this day and age. Andy Katz is interviewing. Andy Katz is bringing up Seton Hall every time he can. It's like he's on the payroll or something. Top 15. At, who, didn't, we say, didn't we hear somewhere along the line at like number seven or something or some craziness? That's Andy Katz again. Right? <laughs> he's on the payroll. We're, so he's getting 20s. So, yes. They got plenty of things to be excited about. But this is where we disagree. You think the casual fan, if for some reason we don't have a memorable performance in the NCAA tournament, will be okay with those results. And my point is this. I think that the casual fan will be disappointed if this team doesn't make the second round of the NCAA tournament. You know, go deep in the NCAAs. That for the casual fan is what resonates. I, I have a brother who is a really big sports fan. I can go back and forth with him with dialogue on sports, but he's not a big college basketball fan like you and I. And when I talk about Seton Hall basketball, he goes, talk to me when March starts. Not, and not March like the Big East tournament or, you know, the conference, uh, you know, who's on the bubble. He wants to know who's going to do what in his bracket. And that is the casual fan, including the, the casual Seton Hall fan. So I'm excited. I, I just think that, the expectations might not be fair for this team for the other half that is jumping on the bandwagon right now. I, I just don't. Well, it, it just seemed like through the off season, our hype and our expectations were rising with nothing really happening in, you know, in the sports world. I mean, exactly. We really, exactly. Didn't, make, we really didn't make a big splash on the graduate transfer level. Our regular recruiting has kind of been under the radar guys who we're expecting to develop eventually. But, you know, if you look at the team, again, last year was supposed to be this rebuilding team. And we've got such huge percentage of returning scoring and guys that are going now going to be upperclassmen that take, take up, I believe, all five spots uh, on the starting five or at least the, uh, the potential starting five that we should be ready. This is going to be a, a experienced team that's going to take the court. I don't want to sound like someone who's class half empty. That wasn't, that wasn't where I was going with this intro monologue and expectation thing. I think this team is going to have a lot of success this year, 
but I think there could still be some growing pains. It's a very challenging uh, non-conference schedule where we might have some, you know, huge wins, but we could also have, you know, some losses sprinkled in there. And then the casual fan might see us drop out of the 20, top 25, get a win and move back in similar to the, the angel Desi Kadeen senior season where they, you know, that they lost to uh, Rhode Island and then they lost to Rutgers and they were back and forth in the top 25. I could see that possibly happening. So, really excited about the season sky's the limit could be a final four team for all we know my eye is more on let's let's knock nova off the pedestal Let, let's win the biggest regular season title let's be a force in the top 25 the entire season for me that would be an awesome season and then the tournament is gravy because the tournament is a damn crapshoot here's an idea for you mike you want to get the casual fan into it i've got an idea let's get a countdown to 2,494 points. The casual right. fan doesn't even know what that number means. No, they you, 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 you bring, you, well, you gotta enter. That's why we're here. We're here to educate. All so right. All right, you get ahead. a countdown. You say 831 points until Miles Powell's ties the Seton Hall scoring record. And you just keep ticking it down, ticking it down. Every, every After every game, you have that big advertisement somewhere that says tick, 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 tick. I don't well, think like, Miles. Does he I don't really even think, get there? I, nah, does he really I, get there? I, first of all, I don't even think Miles even cares about that record. I know it's an awesome oh, record. Oh, Michael. He, he, you, you are not going to get him on. He doesn't care. We're not going to get him on the record. On, Jerry you, Walker was on this broadcast and telling us that Terry the Hair cared. Don't tell me Miles doesn't know what where he is you, it. You are not going to get Miles in any interview this year to answer something about that being more important than the uh, team success. And down There's the not. line, when we have Sandro on, when he's a graduate, he's going to tell us, "Oh, Miles knew everywhere, every game where he was at." All right, all right. So, so let's let's assume it's in the back of his head because I think it's an intriguing number. He's got to basically average 23 points per game, which he did last year, 23.1, over a 36-game stretch. Now, most people are like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. They only play 30 regular season games. So can we get them to 36 games on the schedule? Because if they don't, I don't know if it's possible. So there's possibly going back to the Big East finals. It could be three more games right there. And then they make a run and get to the Sweet 16. And that would be another three games there. That would get me to 36. Is that realistic? Well, we've, we've kind of had this conversation before. The more successful this team is, the less reliant I think they're going to have to be on Miles Powell. You're going to have to get scoring from other factors. You're going to have the number two, number three guys. We'll go into it later. But if you're not having well-balanced scoring this team's not going to make a big run into the Big East tournament it's not going to make a big run into the Sweet 16 so I don't know that it happens that's a whole lot of points and people look at that 23 and they're like that doesn't sound like a whole lot of points in the college game it is the most points scored per game in Big East history was 26.7 I think it is by Dougie Buckets uh, back in his Creighton days so this is this is not an easy task. I think last year's team at times acknowledged the fact that they were offensively challenged, knew how dynamic Miles was. They gave him the ball, got out of his way, and kind of sit back and you know stood back and watched. I don't think this team is going to play that way. 
I think this team is going to have more confidence across the board. We keep on talking about expectations. I do believe, as we talk throughout the rest of this podcast, that certain players, now that they're upperclassmen, are going to mature. They're going to have more individual confidence. Uh, you're going to see an offensive system that shares the ball. You're going to see Miles take some of the feedback from the NBA camps and try to distribute it a little more to balance his game, which is good for the team. It's not just good for Miles and his draft stock. It's it's better for the team overall to be balanced. And because they'll be balanced, I think they're going to blow some teams out this year. And when you blow teams out, you come out of the game early. I, there's so many different factors. I agree with you. I think duplicating his 23 last year and matching the expectations for team success don't go hand in hand. I think he falls a little bit short, but that's no knock on Miles whatsoever. No, no, it, it, it's it, it's amazing where he started and where he's finishing. Uh, so one more thing for the casual fan that they need to promote. The drive for five, man. The drive for that fifth straight NCAA appearance. That that should be a big selling point this year. Do people realize that that never even happened under PJ's regime? Well, Do they you, realize you that? bring it up. <laughs> okay. I mean, we well, we're always... Year, so, I mean, I, at this point, probably because... Last year's team was so identified with that fourth appearance, and they were saying, you know, this has only happened one more time uh, in the Seton Hall era. So this is something you, you bring up. You go for that drive for five, man. Come on out. You're seeing history. Once again, I, I don't think the casual fan resonates with that. But for the, for the fan that's more the diehard, the one that's the season ticket holder, I think that's important. I think it's really important for us to not miss the mark completely by not being in the NCAA tournament. So it has to be one of the goals. It has to be the, the minimum expectation, in my opinion. It's, it's got to drive the team's identity this year, Mike. I, I think the team has got to say to itself, it's got to make that tournament and it's got to make a run to it. I mean, well, you just can't miss it. Well, let's talk about identity because we were talking about Miles not kind of shouldering the entire burden of the scoring load. So, you know, that kind of goes into what is this team going to look like, you know, on the offensive side of the floor. I, I think we know what they already are on the defensive side of the floor. Pretty gritty, you know, grinded out type team. But this is where I kind of want to lead off this next, next segment. So Seth Davis wrote an article for The Athletic, and he basically says, quote, now entering his 10th season at Seton Hall, Willard, 44, has a better understanding of how and whom he wants to coach. I, I kind of think we forget how young Willard was when he kind of took over the, the mess from Bobby Gonzalez, right? But if I asked you to tell me how he wants to coach, could you? I, I think there are tons of different ways that they can play. They, they have many options. They have the ability to go four small like Villanova has done over the years with a true big protecting the rim. I always thought Villanova played four, four small with like a, you know, athletic power forward kind of, you know, manning the middle. We got some trees guarding the middle. I, I think we could press. We showed a lot of success late in the season, pushing teams based on tempo because we had to, we were down double digits, but that was a successful style for us. And we've but, got you know, athletic guys to do it too. I think we got depth. I mean, we were basically grinding Miles Powell down. Q was playing 30-plus minutes. I think there's going to be confidence in other guys in Willard's rotation to go nine, possibly ten deep, and play that style throughout the game a little more. There's, there's so many different ways you could spin this. I like the fact that they're a grinded-out defensive team. I don't want to lose that identity. I'd, I'd like to make sure that if we do anything offensively to open it up, we don't lose that other half of the court. That has been our calling card. When they grind it out and play D, they are a tough team to beat. They can play with almost anybody in the country. 
and they've got talent at a, at almost every position. So I'm thinking we're not going to have Miles Powell bringing it up and then chucking a crazy shot when he can. Or Kadeem, Kadeem did that when he was running point in his senior season. There were a lot of times where he was just bringing the ball down at the end of the games and and, and just chucking one. I, I think you're going to see like the more traditional sets run. You're going to have a lot more options and have some trust in guys on the sides. Like I, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there's so many different ways they can play, and I just like the fact that they have that versatility. So if he wants to blend the different styles from a game-to-game -game perspective, that's awesome. If he wants to pick one or two and make it this team's identity, that's fine. But what I would like to see is, and what I could give you an opinion on is, I think I know how this roster should be coached. And the leadership, based on the expectations, to me is really important. Willard in the past has been known to be a player's coach and kind of let them figure it out at times. I would love for Willard to be the guy this year. And I think he's already kind of demonstrated it in some of the practices that you know the beat writers have kind of you know followed and listened in on. I don't want to see this player's coach. They're fairly young. I know you keep on saying there's a lot of upperclassmen now on this team, but Q's on his only second year with the team. Sandro and Kale are really on the, their second season fully playing, you know, major minutes. I think they're technically a younger team relative to age and what they've accomplished. So I, I think you're stretching here a little bit, Mike. I mean, you've got juniors. They've been part of the team. This is their third year coming in. Regardless if they played major minutes that freshman year, they still practiced against the core four. I so, get I mean, it. I get this it. Is, this is when you're supposed – Mike, you can't have it both ways. You can't have guys that don't come in and, and immediately rock it, and then by the time they develop – junior year is when you're supposed to be developed, man. I, I, I don't disagree. I, but but Delgado's – excuses. Don't give Del Sandro any excuses. I, I was, just, I was just about to go there. Delgado's junior year is not the same as, as Sandro's junior year. You expected Delgado to be as dominant – as he was, Delgado I think it was a four-star recruit coming in. Come on. It's not so, fair. So, you can't. Oh, next thing you're going to bring in is Artie. Now, first, we first the comparisons with uh, Arturis Karnishevich. Now we're comparing them to, uh, now we're I comparing think, them to Delgado. Come on. I think Sandro and Kale can have great years, but you know, outside of some games where they kind of blew up, they had inconsistency. You so that being said, I, I want Willard to, I want him to ride them a little bit. I want him to sit there and say, Hey, I need you two guys to not disappear on me from time to time. I want him to grind them. This is not about Sandro and Kale. I want Willard from a leadership perspective to be like, look, I got Q. I got, I got Powell. And I'm going to put a lot of responsibility on those two guys as seniors, but Hey, Sandro, Kale, I need you guys in there every night. You got to give it to me every night. No, no disappearing acts. So, but so Will, Will's got to do that. You want him to get those roles defined immediately. Absolutely. You want them to get that idea in their head is this is where you've got to be. Let's go. You wonder why? Because I, I cannot deal with another January swoon or having to listen to it's okay, everybody. We're going to have another players only meeting. We cannot have the fifth straight. I mean, this would be the fifth straight year that we had a players only meeting. That can't happen this year. It just, it just can't. Okay. Well, you brought up Sandro and Carolyn. I think this is an interesting argument here, and, and it's kind of been bothering me, and I'm glad we're here talking about it. Everyone has put up this idea of someone's got to step up as a number two option, and everybody is pointing to Sandro as that option. Now, I know you love Sandro, Mike. I know he's your guy. Give me the argument. Give you the argument of Sandro versus Kale. Just I, give me the argument of Sandro. Just give me the argument of Sandro as the number two guy. 
I, I thought we already saw it in the exhibition, and I know it's against lesser talent. Again, uh, in you know the Italy, uh, what do you say? Pickup players, you call them the talented six eleven uh, uh, stretch fours dominating the short, fat Italian guys. I got it. You. It was his demeanor. I, I said this in the recap of the exhibition games. He had a look where he knew what to do with the ball as soon as he got it. He wasn't hesitant. He wasn't thinking about, do I jab step? Do, do I post the guy up here? You know, he, he didn't double clutch on his shot in any way. He was aggressive. And that's all we wanted from Sandro. I think he's going to take that play and he's going to consistently do that next year. And I do believe what everybody else is writing. I do think him moving over to his natural four is going to take him on the defensive side away from some of the big bangers. And when you got to work that hard on the defensive side of the floor, you tend to maybe sometimes take plays off offensively. I think that balance on both sides of the floor is going to allow his offensive game to breathe a little bit. I think he's going to get matched up with guys that can't play against his size. I think he was matched up against the other team's five a lot. And because his outside shot was struggling, you know, maybe he was neutralized a little bit in the low post. Now I think he's going to get undersized fours, and I think he's going to go to work. I think he's, you're going to see him clean up the offensive glass a lot more. I'm not saying he's going from his nine and eight and becoming like a 15 and 12 guy. I think that's ridiculous that people all of a sudden expect him to average a double double. But I think you're going to have a Sandro that is more confident. I think you're going to have a Sandro that's more consistent. And I really think he's going to be the night in and night out guy on the front court that will give you the complimentary scoring to Powell. Mike, I, I'm, that's, that's not a knock on kill, though. So go ahead. You defend Mike, kill. Mike, I'm going to shock you. I agree with absolutely everything you said. Mark it down. Mark it down. I think Sandro's going to have a nice year. I think he's going to improve, pushing back down to what they everyone considers his natural stretch four. Let's see him hit a three-pointer on a regular basis before you start calling him a stretch four. I think he's got playmaking ability that'll help out. I, I, I think he's going to have a great season, but this is what bothers me, Mike. Miles Kale made a bigger jump from freshman year to sophomore year than than Sandro did, and I'll explain why. Miles Kale, as a freshman, looked super uber uncomfortable with the ball. Even on the wing when he was just getting a pass and he was passing it right back to the point guard, those passes were hesitant. The only time he seemed comfortable on the offensive end was on breakaway dunks where he just happened to release and get a pass up front. He looked super uncomfortable last year he was the number two option mike whether people want to admit it or not he was second leading scorer he actually led the team in three point percentage and now we'd like to see it more consistent more two of four three of five games than the five of six and then over eight game you know because he was last year was up and down but he still had his biggest games and biggest moments in the highest level games we played hits the game winner against kentucky plays out of his mind against at maryland and then home against nova but people want to cheer sandro for some reason and it's happened since the day he committed. People were dropping nicknames on him, comparing him to Seton Hall legends. I don't get it. I want him to play well. I think he's going to play well this year. But they celebrate his victories like it's like he's accomplished something. Last year, when he had that big game against, um, uh, well, who was it? it Sacred was, uh, Heart. Sacred, Sacred Heart. Heart. Thank you. 
It was like, Mamu Mia, he's finally broken through with a big game against undersized, under-talented opposition. I do think he's going to have a great season. I think Kale is getting disrespected in this regard. For the record, it took you about 30 minutes before you put down Sandro in the 2019-2020 season. <laughs> you, you, had, you had to bring back the Sacred Heart game and the, the Mamma Mia. Uh, I'm, I'm moving on from that. I, I agree with you relative to Kale as well. So we, we seem to be on the same page here with both Sandro and miles i think miles has certain things i would like to see him do or be used in ways that complement his strengths there was a lot of times that he got the ball late in the shot clock and he was asked to kind of create his own opportunity to shoot the ball and that's kind of i think where his deficiency stood out that's where in his three-point shooting to uh, the percentage wise went down i think there were times where his ability to create off the dribble were exposed a little bit he is an outstanding player out on the break He's an outstanding player when he also slashes to the basket. So can can we get him more involved in ways that allow him to throw down a dunk and be uber athletic like he is? And, and I'll say this, Michael, why are we in this search for the Robin to Miles Powell's Batman? Wouldn't it be better if we had two guys that we can constantly count on? I'd take Kale and Sandro getting consistent output over just having one of them being the number two. They have both of them score 13 points a game, and I'd be sitting there clapping my hands. I'm going to raise the ante. How, how about we go three? I honestly believe, and I know this has been written as well, but I think that Jared Roden is in line for a breakout season if he could stay healthy all of a sudden, right? So Jared had the big shoulder injury coming from his high school senior season into Seton Hall. Kind of didn't really find his groove till the back end of the season, but yeah, big games against Villanova and, and down the stretch in the Big East tournament. The kid can play. And he started off with like two of 20 from three-point range and all of a sudden was shooting like 35% to end the season. The kid could fill it up. He did score like 28 a game his senior season in high school. And everybody's basically telling you, watch out for, my, uh, for Jared. Once again, hurt his ankle again in the JSBL over the summer. It's kind of been like a nagging injury. But if he can get back healthy... I think he's a, he's a matchup nightmare. I think he's one of those guys that you can put at the four and go small and creates huge mismatches and still can hold his own on the glass. I, you know, I, I think you could slide him over to the three and push Kale. So if Kale is in his funk where he's not giving you that consistency, I think Roden can push him for minutes or backfill his scoring. Why can't it be all three of those guys to compliment Miles? Well, I'll say this. We're basing him as a breakout based on what guys are seeing over the summer and a handful of games at the end of last season. I'm not ready to anoint him as the breakout star. I want to see it on the court. And how is the development going to be hampered based on what you just said? This is the second year in a row he's coming in recovering from an injury. Is this going to be a recurring theme with him? He has a good season. Next year, he comes in with a bad hand. I don't know. I need to see him out there before I say he's going to break out star. I think it's going to be more important for Anthony Nelson to be a breakout at the point than it will be for Roden at that position. All right, hold, hold that thought for a second because we'll, we'll go there next. I think Roden has that look when he has the ball. So when he is on his game, he's looking to score where Sandro and Kale were hesitant. And this is them being in the rotation full minutes as sophomores, once again, Roden, end of his freshman year, had that like eye of the tiger look like, give it to me. I, I want the big shot. When he put up the three-pointer in the Wofford game to give them the first lead late in the second half, you were like, wow, Jared Roden wanted that ball in that moment. 
you know, here's a guy who struggled all season and he was like, bang, take the lead. Big. I, at that point, I thought we were winning that game. I really did. Um, Cause it wasn't just miles. I'd want to see it happen in more than just a handful of games at the end. Sure. Of the but, but that's why people are kind of earmarking him for the breakout. He just has that look. So once again, this is all about expectations and perspective. I believe with what most people are saying, he should be that guy to keep an eye on because he has that look of, I can take the jump from my freshman to sophomore season. Another guy that I think has to take a major jump from his freshman to sophomore season for this team to, to go to the next level is, is Anthony Nelson. We need someone to compliment Q at the point guard spot. So go well, ahead. There's been reports coming out that Q is feeling a lot more comfortable at the point. You know, he was that combo guard that we seem to love to bring in to run the point. Hopefully Q will feel more confident. They say he's looking more like the player he was at Sacred Heart. Hopefully, you're going to have these two guys that can handle that point position. And, you know, if and maybe then Q can move over to that two and, and Nelson can run the point and you have that kind of security blanket just in case because you know your primary ball handler is still on the court as well. That's going to be the interesting part is I, I want to see a balance between Nelson, Powell, and Q. I think Q is very similar to Kale. I think he's really good slashing to the basket. He's good with his mid-range game. I'm not saying he's a bad point guard. His numbers were not that bad, but when Q had an off night at the point, it really showed and it really slowed down the offense. So if Powell is going to be the guy that is going to facilitate the offense at times, right? Because that's what he's going to be asked to do. And I think Willard's going to respect that feedback because Miles came back and give him the opportunity to show that ability. When Miles is going to be running more of a lead guard, point guard kind of facilitation of the offense, I don't want to see Anthony Nelson at the two. I, I want no, to see Q no. slide over, right? I want to see Q still on the court to maximize what his strength is, and his strength is lockdown defense. We're going to be playing against some really impressive guards. You got Cassius Winston from Michigan State. You got Anthony Cowan from Maryland. These are guys that were great last year, and they're coming to the Rock. We don't we don't win those games if Q doesn't bring his A game and lock those two down. So he's going to have to be on the court. It's just a matter of how do we integrate Anthony Nelson into the offense because he is still the only true point guard on this roster. I think the facilitation for Miles Powell's point is going to open up more of his offensive game. If you can't just sit there and think, oh, he's just going to pull the trigger, I've got to be careful because he might just you know, drive and kick. It's going to open up his game a little more as well. I'm okay with Miles playing some lead guard. I think what people don't realize is he played a lot of lead guard down the stretch last year. Once again, this is perception. This is yeah, but by necessity, not necessarily by. Okay, you know. that's fine. That's fine. There were things that Nelson started to do at the end of last year where you go, wow, Nova championship game, first half of the Wofford game. You were like, oh my goodness. That's what we thought we were going to get to see from him. Now, maybe that was unfair expectations because he was a freshman. He's bulked up. You know, he looks like he can handle the physical play of the Big East now a little bit more. He just looks like more of a natural point guard. So I just want to see him get at least 20 minutes a night. Maybe he finds a way to get more. Maybe we, we truly do press teams defensively and, and the balance of minutes will just naturally happen and we don't have to expend miles for 35 plus on a night. I hope that's not the case. And I think Nelson is going to be the, the key cog to make sure the balance occurs across those two guard positions. Let's go to potentially the one big question mark on this team, Mike. Who's going to back up the four, and what kind of contributions are we going to get? Ooh, the mystery contribution. Okay, all right, let, let's have some fun here because there's, there's two different players that we can talk about. Do you, you want to talk about Samuels and I'll take on Torian? 
it, it breaks my heart, Mike. I don't know if there's much to talk about Torin anymore. Go ahead. I mean, you, you, you do Samuel. You do Samuel then. Well, you've got this kid who looks uber athletic. He gave us a few, whoa, did you see those moments in Italy? But he's young. He's lean. We're not quite sure. We're really not quite sure what he's going to give us. I mean, the early reports from practice was he's pushing the older guys. But we've heard a lot of things come out of practice that we won't bring up that necessarily didn't translate. And we know that Kevin doesn't like playing freshmen all that much, even when they're, you know, supposedly talented. You know, he sees something he doesn't like in practice, and these guys end up not being in the rotation. So I don't know what we're going to get out of Samuels, but I would love to see him come down the court and give one of those oomph dunks like he did against Italy. The behind-the-head tomahawk. Oh, that was nice. So that's what scares me, too. I I'm afraid that based on just Willard's historical MO with freshmen, he might find himself getting some limited minutes. And, and it's all about how he plays on the defensive side. And, you know what? We don't have the a, a cupcake non-conference schedule. I mean, right out of the gate, we're playing some tough competition. So if, if let's say we played like a St. John's schedule from last year, you know, maybe maybe he'd get a lot of run. I, I think if we're going to be in a lot of nip and tuck games, we're going to be in a lot of road environments. He just might not get integrated into the system as much. That, that could be good or bad. That means that we're playing competitive basketball. Maybe we're winning some games and the team success needs to trump the individual development. But here's a kid who's a four-star recruit. You got to set an expectation that when you recruit other guys that are four-star players, that they're going to be able to come into the system and get minutes. I understand if we have three-star kids like, Sandro, Rodin, and Nelson, and some of the new guys that we got in Stevens and Long. We've already set the expectation that when you come in, you're going to get your minutes by the end of your sophomore uh, and upper class seasons. A guy like Samuel, he's not there yet, but he does have an NBA skill set. When you bring in guys that are that uber talented, we got to find ways to get him in the rotation. It's just going to be tough. High expectations on the season. He might not get that opportunity, and I, I hope he's okay with that and picks his spots to contribute. And with a sadness in my heart, Michael, I don't know that his lack of minutes potentially are going to have anything to do with what Torian Thompson does on the court. I have given up on my main man getting any kind of meaningful minutes. If you can't keep track of your guy 30 seconds into checking into an exhibition game, how are you going to be trusted in games that are meaningful? Well, this, that's the funniest thing about this entire conversation we've had so far. This is a season preview. This is all about hype and expectations and who has talent and who could break through their ceiling. If there's a guy on the team that is just chopped full of talent, this, this is the guy. This is the guy. We've seen it in spurts, the Kentucky game. You know, his ability to get to the rim in like a couple, like, you know, loping strides. This guy's got uber potential. And yet we just buried him as like the come off the bench in a, in a blowout kind of game. I got nothing. To, I got nothing. Mike. you know how much I want this guy to succeed. And I've got nothing. I mean, he got a hook in Italy. He got the hook in Italy, Michael. Maybe we will be pleasantly surprised that he finds a way to endear himself to Kevin. He doesn't have the defensive lapses he, at this point. He's going to have to prove it more than anything else. I, and I can I, only hope. I can only hope. There's just only so many minutes that can go around on top of that. So if Thompson gets the opportunity to do so, he better make the most of it right away. Because we just talked about not finding enough minutes for Samuel to play and keeping a young recruit who's a talented recruit happy. You know what? If Kale does what you described, 
Kale was a 30-minute-a-night guy last year. Where does Roden play? You know, Sandro's projected for 30 minutes. Kale's projected for 30 minutes. Where's Roden getting the time? So Roden's going to play some backup three. He's going to play some backup four in small ball time. Now we got Samuel playing the four. Where the heck is Torian Thompson getting on this court? I don't know, Mike. He's a quandary. He, he's he's an enigma. But it's, it's a nice bounty of riches to have, to yeah, be able absolutely. to sit there and turn around and say, you know what, Torian, I'm going to give you a shot tonight. And the guy that I throw in that's probably the 10th guy in my rotation has the ability to put in 20 points on a given night. That's how talented it is. What was the last time we could sit there and say the 10th guy in the rotation could go off for 20 points? I mean, I, I can't fathom the last time that that occurred with this program. Well, Mike, we've got one position that we haven't talked about, and it's you were talking about riches a second ago. I, I, I don't know what word I want to use for it, but we've got this double-headed monster, double seven-footers at the center, Mike. We've never had two guys that are going to be this productive or, or potentially this productive at the center position. I know someone on Twitter stated this. The last time we had two seven-footers was when we had Luther Wright and Jim Dickinson. And all respect due to Jim Dickinson, but the guy averaged like a minute a game or a point a game, three minutes a game. He, he got into 15 games. That's not a double-headed monster. This is truly something where we can see five, six blocks a game and changing the, the entire complexion of other teams' offensive strategies. I think for the first time in a long time, you can use the word comfortable with describing what we expect out of the five spot. I, I don't know what the number is going to be for production. I know people like to sit there and say, all right, you know, each, each guy is going to play 20 minutes. And if I can get, you know, 12 points and eight rebounds and three blocks a game from my center position, I'm going to be ecstatic. I, I, I don't know what that number is going to be. I honestly don't care what the number is going to be offensively. I think for the first time in a long time, I, mean, I don't think they're going to play together on the court simultaneously. But I think regardless, if you want to play big, you can rotate either one of these guys in defensively, and they are going to rebound and protect the rim. Here's how crazy this has been. There's been actually a debate that I've followed on Twitter of whether Obiagu or, or Rose should be starting, and it, it's really kind of funny to me. I think we've seen the top end of Rose game. He, and he's probably suited more for coming off the bench in short spurts, doing his thing, and then coming back out. Uh, and even uh, what was funny was Willard lamented at at some interview, I think it was during the media day, where he had to use Enzi and Sandro as smaller centers last year. Well, well, you did have a seven-footer, and you left him on the bench. You know, you could have started that seven-footer, pushed Sandro to his natural four position, and dealt with it, but you didn't. Why? Because he probably wasn't going to be as productive as you'd like him to. Now, Obiagu seems more athletic, He's seems, but he's he seems raw on offense, which I think describes Roe as well. But we don't know what his top end is. And if and with everything being a squash, you go with the guy with the more upside. I mean, this is a guy who was a top 100 recruit when he was you know originally brought into Florida State. You know, this is a guy who was blocking, you know, two shots a game and only playing 10 minutes. So, I mean, people want to extrapolate those numbers over 40 minutes and be like, wow, this guy's going to block like 50 shots a game. <laughs> and, and and this goes back to practice again. Oh, you haven't seen this guy play in practice. Everything ends up in the 20th row. And we don't even have 20 rows in the bleachers. <laughs> you know what's funny, though, Mike? I I'll say this. Here's something. It doesn't necessarily matter who starts, but who finishes. And I'm telling you this. I see... 
Sandro getting pushed to the five at the end of tight games more often than not, if only for his offensive skill set, for that you know guaranteed set of free throws that we'd like to see. I don't know that either of those guys sniff the floor in tight games. See, that's not fair. Because uh, once again, I agree with you. I, I think if, if you're asking me the best five guys to put on the floor offensively, and not basically lose a lot on defense. I think you will see at times down the stretch, Sandro at the five, Roden at the four, Kale at the three, Miles, and somebody else, Q or Nelson, playing the point. Totally agree with you. But if it's a grinded out game against Marquette, I don't see us kind of not utilizing an Obiagu or a Gill against a Theo John. I, I just don't see that. I think matchup is truly going to dictate you know, who sees the floor. And, and hopefully Willard can juggle that. And he doesn't fall in love with, oh, I got to have these five guys as my closers. Like, you know, be that mad scientist, like you always like to say. Assess the situation. There were games last year where Roe came in and completely changed the dynamic of the game. And there were times where he played, changed the dynamic against teams that we didn't think he would match up well against. For example, you know, the game at St. John's that we got blown out at the Garden. It, it was bleak. We were down like 30 early, I felt like. And Roe being in that game all of a sudden got us back to being competitive. And that was supposed to be a matchup where St. John's plays five outside and Roe was changing stuff. Marquette was supposed to be another team. He had an impact. He completely won the game along with Kale in the Maryland game, if you ask me. If you would have told me at the beginning of the season, does Romaro Gill be one of the top three factors for winning a road game and against ranked Maryland, I would have thought you were nuts. So once again, here's my guy who could be my backup center, my starting center, the 10th guy in my rotation. I don't care. I'm comfortable. I started off with, I feel comfortable. So if I get anything similar to Roe from Obiagu with a little more ceiling, I mean, how the heck do you feel about the five? You feel comfortable. So well, Mike, you bring up all these particular games where Roe was a, a difference maker. And I technically agree. The schedule will dictate it. I still see Sandro on the floor toward tight games. But this schedule is nothing to sneeze at. And it's going to be interesting how Willard manages it and how he navigates it. I don't think people realize how challenging this schedule is. Last year was one heck of a schedule with at Maryland, Kentucky at the Garden, you know, the the, the final stretch of Marquette and Nova at home being ranked. I mean, it was a really awesome and fun schedule. It, it's kind of hard to raise the bar from that schedule. And I think this year we've actually done that. But I'd like to take a deeper dive into it. And I don't, I don't know it to the, to the depths that I probably should. So that's why I'm kind of glad that we're going to have Jerry Carino kind of join us for this next segment to really kind of go through the non-conference schedule, kind of how the, this, the regular season kind of breaks out for Seton Hall and kind of dive into some of the nuances there. Jerry's been covering Seton Hall for quite some time, and I'm excited to have him on to give us that kind of insight. He was a Setonian editor and a Seton Hall University graduate, has covered sports for New Jersey newspaper since 1996, and has been on the college basketball beat since 2003. Currently a sports writer for the Asbury Park Press. Welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Jerry Carino. Jerry, how are you today? Guys, I'm excited because the calendar says October. And October means basketball's around the corner. Well, thanks for joining the show, Jerry. Let's dive right into the schedule. Right out of the gate, the Pirates have a huge test. November 14th, Michigan State invades the Rock National Broadcast on FS1. 
assuming that Michigan State is still number one at the time, is this the biggest Seton Hall non-conference home game of all time? It might be. They have never played the number one team at home out of conference, ever. And so you'd have to say, yeah, I would think so. And you're talking about one of the brand names in the sport, coached by one of the best guys with one of the best players, probably the best player in college basketball at point guard. And so, yeah, this is you can't overhype this game, guys. And I believe it's going to be 18,000 strong, sold out, the whole building for the first time. And what you'll see is almost all Seton Hall fans, because although Michigan State has great fans, they don't travel a ton because I've seen them on the road quite a bit. And it's not like Michigan with this million alumni in New York and they're going to just come out of the woodwork. Michigan State fans are Michigan people. And so it will not be a takeover of the building or the upper deck like you've seen from Villanova maybe in the past. This is going to be 18,000 Seton Hall fans in blue and a real signature moment for the program. So, Jerry, this being the first couple weeks of the season where, you know, the rankings are still kind of up in the air, you think this is going to be bigger than the game against North Carolina back in 93 when North Carolina was number three in the country? That's the only real frame of reference I would have for it. I would say that's that's the great non-conference game that people of a certain age, our age, I think, remember uh, being a signature type of moment. And North Carolina won by four, I think it was. A uh, really, really good game. So, yeah, this is on that scale. But, you know, the number one team is the number one team. And they have to take care of business, Michigan State, and beat Kentucky in the Champions Classic, which will not be easy. But, yes, it will be at the minimum the level of hype and juice and scale of that North Carolina game in the early 90s. But I think it has the potential to be even greater. And it's – you know, it's really, it's not, Seton Hall is not much of an underdog at all in this game, I don't think. I think they match up pretty well with Michigan State, although clearly they're the number one team for a reason because they have strength everywhere. Jerry, I want to stick with the theme of this game being early in the schedule. Do you think that playing four straight games against significantly inferior opponents, which includes the exhibition games at Walsh, adequately prepare the Pirates for a major step up in talent level in a game like this? So you're concerned that because Michigan State's coming in off an acid test, Kentucky on a neutral court, that they might have an edge? You got and it. And you might be right. You might be right. Uh, it's it, You know, it's entirely possible. I don't know what Seton Hall could have done to really – who can you add in that first week when your schedule already is incredibly loaded? You know, so there's not much Seton Hall could have done. The date was given to them by – the conferences, you know, in the Gavit games is always early in mid-November. And so, yeah, I, I would say Michigan State has a little bit of a battle-tested edge there. But Seton Hall is an experienced team. It's not like it's a bunch of new guys and transfers and people trying to figure out roles. Everybody who plays a significant part in that game for Seton Hall, with one or two exceptions, is going to have a lot of experience under their belt and big game experience. So, so I don't think there'll be any sort of shock or sticker shock or you know, rust to shake off. I don't foresee that. But, yeah, if you're looking for an edge for Michigan State, sure, it's not going to hurt that they play Kentucky. And I will say this, having followed Izzo's teams for a long time, you don't want them to, as a Seton Hall fan, you do not want them to lose to Kentucky because Michigan State does not lose back-to-back games very often. And they will they will come out like they're shot out of a cannon if they lose that game the week before. So I think you got your, you got your Sparty hats and your green on that first week of the season, and then you want them coming in at number one off a win, not angry, Izzo off a loss, and then you have yourselves a real showdown. I think very winnable for Seton Hall. They'll be an underdog, but 
a winnable game, but not a, not a long shot by any stretch. Jerry, you rhetorically said, what else could Seton Hall have done in those first couple of games? Maybe not those first couple of games. Could they have scheduled one of those behind closed doors exhibitions against a power five school like they've done in the past? Uh, yeah, they, they have done that. And that, that might still be on tap. I mean, I, I don't know that they're not going to do something like that. Uh, I'll have to find that out. It's getting kind of late in the game and nothing's publicized yet. And I haven't heard anything, but that might well be the case. So yeah, I, I don't think it's out of the question. And sure, that's probably a good idea. You would think if I was Willard, I would certainly do that because you're not going to get much out of those two exhibition games. What you're going to get is you're going to get, you know, Tyree Samuels from court time and see how he looks. And, you know, some of the other guys who are maybe adjusting to different roles and maybe the, you know, maybe they're going to roll out Jared Roden. Just, he, he has some rust to shake off. He hasn't played in, in a couple months, really. So maybe they get him out there. But, y- yeah, you're not going to uh, gain much from playing those games. So, yeah, you're probably right. That's probably a good idea. And they might be able to slide one in. And I'll have to get back to you on that. Well, the challenges don't end there as the Pirates will head off to the Bahamas for the Battle of Atlantis. They're set for a first-round matchup with Oregon, but this is a loaded field with Gonzaga, UNC, Michigan, Bama, Iowa State. How challenging is this field, and where do you rank the Hall in it? The field is great because, so there's eight teams, right? Six of them are good. There's six good teams in Alabama and Southern Mississippi who are not as good. Uh, Of the six teams, I think there's not much difference between the six and, you know, in my my preseason ranking – so I have I would have Seton Hall fourth in that group, uh, ahead of um, ahead of Michigan, who I think is going to be in a total rebuild, and uh, who will still be good because it's talent, and uh, and Iowa State who's good and not not far off the top 25, and then I have Seton Hall just a hair. I mean, it's a toss up with Oregon, and uh, and and Gonzaga, North Carolina, not far ahead. So yeah, I would th- three or four, the third or fourth best team. You can see them winning it. Uh, certainly, and uh, experience will help because they do play an Oregon team with a lot of new parts. That's when you want to play Oregon with all the new pieces, transfers and whatnot. They're trying to piece together out there. And Oregon's also coming east for the game, which is another advantage. So the game's being played on in the east. So uh, I, li- I do like the matchup there. But the key, the whole key of the whole tournament, guys, is the first game. you got to beat Oregon, and then that gets you a game almost certainly with Gonzaga. And... You know, it's a game where if you win it, you're off to the races. If you lose it, it doesn't really hurt you that much. And then you go into the, you know, you go into the the, uh, the third place game uh, against a quality opponent like a Michigan or or an Iowa State type of team, and you're not going to take a hit RPI wise. So you got to win the first game. It's all about the first game because you go into the losers bracket in the second game, and then you might not walk out of there with gaining much out of it. So I do think that even though I have Oregon ranked ahead because Oregon's talent and the the course of a year, it's, you know, they, they're good. Seton Hall's good. But I think they're getting them at the right time. And I can see Seton Hall being favored in November in that game. All right, Jerry. Well, I, I agree with you. But let's go back to this opening opponent in Oregon. I don't think most fans kind of understand the amount of players they brought in that you alluded to. So they were going to be going through a rebuilding year themselves. And all of a sudden, they just hit a windfall of talent. They had a, a five-star center. And I could be saying this wrong. But and Folly Dante reclassified. Uh, to the current recruiting class. They landed C.J. Walker, another five-star small forward. Uh, They out-recruited or possibly out-recruited Shakur Justine, power forward transfer from UNLV from the grad transfer route. They got the JUCO National Player of the Year in Chris Duarte and another four-star center in Chandler Lawson. Because they're going to be so new with all these pieces gelling, is that the advantage Seton Hall has to have? Or is some of this talent just too much that Seton Hall is going to be able to match up against? 
Oh, no, they'll, they'll, they'll match up with them. Seton Hall will match up with anybody. I mean, Seton Hall is good enough to match up. There's no team that's going to be a really bad matchup for Seton Hall this year. Now, there are particulars, of course, but, but uh, no, they're getting them at the right time. Absolutely. I don't want to play Oregon in, in February or, in, or draw them in March, but I, you'd want to play them in November. Uh, I do think, I have to tell you, I think a key guy in these first few games, and I, he hasn't gotten any mention really in the preseason, is Quincy McKnight because – you have the number one thing you got to do against these teams is stop the ball. And you know Michigan State is the best player in the country. McKnight's going to have to play him and stay out of foul trouble. And the same thing against Oregon. I mean, Oregon's going to want to go up and down the floor, and McKnight's going to have to control the game at both ends. So he he's a super important guy. And I do think the experience he has, Powell has, Mamu Kale, these guys who play a lot of basketball is going to help them. Especially, look, Michigan State's got a ton of experience too, but especially in a game against Oregon. So yeah. You mentioned Houston, the UNLV uh, transfer. Of course, he was, you know, Seton Hall was in the mix there right down to the bitter end. And who, who knows with recruiting what goes on. But, but uh, you know, Seton Hall did have a full roster. So it's just what it is. People wanted, I know there was a lot of sentiment to bring him here, bring him here. Oregon is a team that turns their roster over a lot, like a pro team. And Seton Hall doesn't operate that way. I mean, Kevin has guys who he develops and commits to. And to me, that's what college basketball is about. You know, Oregon seems like a form team sometimes, but what you're going to have is a very talented roster out there to play against, so that's the challenge. I will tell you this. When the matchup first came out, it, it looked pretty good for Seton Hall, and it's gotten a lot tougher between now and when that, that matchup, that draw first came out. But I still, th- I still like the Pirates getting Oregon early on. Now it's a 9.30 tip-off time, and it seems like every season we've got these late-night draws. Does the late-night tip favor Seton Hall since they've found themselves in these kind of situations over and over? I don't know. Maybe just because Oregon's coming across the country. Uh, I will tell you that, that Willard hates the late-night games, because, and not because he doesn't like staying up late. It's because when you have a late-night game, it has a domino effect uh, after that. You, 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 your clock is off. And it takes, you know, maybe a week to snap out of these late night games and these late, you know, you, you, you might come home from a watching a game or you might turn the TV off and go to bed at midnight, you know, but these guys, they can't go to bed. They're going to bed at like three, four in the morning. You can't wind down after playing at that level. You can't wind that down quickly. So what's happening is everyone's clock is all screwed up and you lose, you know, it has a domino effect for a full week just beyond even the tournament. And I can, I've seen this in action at the Big East tournament. Seton Hall's played in all these 930 games, as you guys mentioned, the last couple of years in the Big East tournament. It's exhausting. And I think it has affected their, their NCAA tournament prep. And so you'd rather not play at 930. Now, will it, will it be better for Oregon? I don't think so because they're coming across the country. So that could be another edge. But I will tell you that when Seton Hall gets these 930 games, everybody groans because it's, like I said, you, the exhaustion level carries over beyond what the fan sees i'll tell you i'm not growing on the west coast that's prime time for us man a nice 6 30 game dinner's <laughs> over we're having a good time yes you guys will enjoy it and good for you you deserve it you deserve a decent start time all right uh jerry you you already talked about this earlier about what the path would look like for the remainder of the tournament uh based on the result of that oregon game assuming seton hall wins you play the top half of the bracket you play a better strength the schedule, you improve your your net. Let's talk about, conversely, what could happen if they lose to Oregon. There's a possibility that they might match up in games against Southern Miss and possibly Alabama. It could still be a 2-1 result, but would that be classified as a disappointing result? I'm, I'm hearing on social media some overreactions that this is a must-win. I'm not taking it to that, you know, that level, 
but would it be disappointing if the two and one did not end up with top level competition? At the time, sure, because that's why you enter that tournament. You don't enter that tournament to play Alabama and Southern Miss. So, yeah, it would be. Now, will Alabama, you know, Southern Mississippi, I don't think it would be very good. Will Alabama be better than people think? That could, maybe they are. You know, we don't know. And as we talked about earlier, we don't know in October. But and if they are, you'll, they'll benefit, Seton Hall will benefit from that down the road. But so, yeah, you don't want, you, of course, two and one is not anything to sneeze at in any tournament, okay? But it would be the most disappointing two win outcome you could have there. So I do. Uh, there is a lot of overreaction, but I do think the first game is really, really important. I think everybody who wears blue would agree that with that. Okay, well, as difficult as the Battle of Atlantis is going to be, things aren't going to get any easier as Seton Hall moves on the schedule. They go on to have three tough road challenges in the next four games. They're going to be at St. Louis, who beat us last year, at Iowa State, and then at Rutgers. Should we be favored in all three of these contests? No, probably not. Uh, well, at St. Louis, yes. St. Louis lost a lot. They're not anywhere near the team they were last year. That should be a W. I don't care if that game's played on the moon. Moving past that, the other two games, if Seton Hall gets a split between Iowa State and Rutgers on the road, I think that'll be a win for the program, a net win, because I have not been to Iowa State, but I have heard that it's one of the tougher places to play in the Big 12. And I think Iowa State's very good. Uh, they just missed my top 25 this is a good team with an excellent coach and a good mix of experience and balance. And so that will be a tough game. And you guys saw what happened at Rutgers two years ago. And that Rutgers team was vastly inferior to this Rutgers team this year, which I think is an NIT team. That will be Rutgers NCAA championship game atmosphere wise in the rack. Think about the fall they've had on that campus. The football team has been outscored like 900 to 7. Okay. And that sounds about right. You know, you have these people are literally foaming at the mouth on that camp. All right. Maybe not literally, but people are figuratively foaming at the mouth on that campus for basketball. And Seton Hall game is of outsized importance to them because if you look at their non conference schedule, it's really all they got. I mean, they're at Pitt, which may be a good game, might not be. We'll see if Pitt's taking the next step. They were not good last year, but. The Seton Hall is all they got, and it's certainly all they have at home at a conference. So if Rutgers wants to bolster their resume, it's a must-win for them for the postseason. And like I said, with the desperation that's on that campus, uh, you're going to see an a-, a rack atmosphere like you have never seen. Tickets are going to be, I'm telling you right now, the secondary market for tickets is going to be it's going to be $200 and up, which is unheard of for college basketball in New Jersey. This is a very hard game to win. So that in Iowa State, could they be underdogs? I don't know. you got to show me the results leading into the game for me to get projected point spread. But it's, a, it's two tough games to win, and I think a split would be a job well done, and a sweep of those two games would be off to the races. All right, Jerry, sticking with the Rutgers game, outside of the fact that, as you mentioned, Rutgers playing in their proverbial Super Bowl against Seton Hall in that raucous atmosphere, give me three factors or three reasons why on the court Rutgers could pull off this upset? Well, first of all, Rutgers finally has a big-time player, uh, which they have not really had since Quincy Doobie, and that is Ron Harper is a rising star. He's a, I think he's a rising superstar. He could be an all-Big all Ten player, second or third team by the end of this year. He's only a sophomore. He, he slipped under the, the recruiting experts' radar, and you know the, the bloodlines that he has are starting to show. I've seen Rutgers work out numerous times in the offseason. He's just a dominant player who 
He's positionless, and his IQ is very high, and he's a great athlete. He's now, you know, he wasn't in good shape last year, and now he's physically in much better shape. So that's one, is they have a guy, listen, he's not as good as Miles Powell. There, pretty much nobody is, other than Cassius Winston, maybe one or two other guys, maybe. But he's, he's good, he's very good, and he could take over a game for Rutgers. So that's, that's reason one. Uh, reason two is, I think Rutgers has, he finally has the ball handling and backcourt depth to be able to defend a little better without somebody getting in foul trouble and the whole thing falling apart. Uh, and also to be able to, if one guy's cold, you know, if Quincy McKnight has taken one guy out of the game, like he did with Joe Baker last year, they can go to other guys. So they do have a nice group of five or six guards who finally have some depth. Like Rutgers, when they go down to their bench in the past, it's been, their bench has been bad. Uh, Seton Hall's beaten them pretty well in that regard, and I do think they'll be better on the bench than they were. You know, the third thing is, I think Peichel has done, he's done a pretty good job defending Seton Hall. He's done a pretty good job drawing up defenses against them the last, really every matchup they've played. So, you know, Seton Hall, it took a late Powell three to get a little breathing room last year, and then two years ago, or three years ago, it was the game at the Rock was, I think Rutgers was up by nine at the half. It was very low scoring, so so he does seem to have a pretty good handle on, on Kevin's offense on what they run. That said, only one team has Miles Powell, which is, of course, a huge trump card. But, but those are three reasons, aside from the building, that Rutgers is you know, a better team and is a team that's certainly capable of winning that game. And it's going to be – I mean, that's, that's the type of game there. Seton Hall walks out of there with a win. People have to understand that that is a type of win that grows hair on your chest. I mean, that is, that is a win that you can – that's a win that you can you can draw from in March. You know, I don't think if you haven't been on the floor of the rack, if you haven't seen it up close, you don't realize how hard of a game that is. So I I do think it's a it's a great opportunity for Seton Hall to gain something out of it and not just you know you only beat Rutgers. I think those days are over. I've been to the rack on on numerous occasions. It's always a emotional environment, kind of physically dra- emotionally physically draining. What's the X factor for Seton Hall to walk out with a win? So last year, the X factor was Sandra, right? He had a terrific game, and Rutgers was completely unprepared. As good as they are, as well coached as they are, and as good defensively as they are, they were completely unprepared for Sandra to hit threes. So he hit a couple threes that helped Seton Hall gain that lead that they never lost. I, I like him as an X factor because Rutgers' weakness, Seton Hall doesn't really have, they don't really have a weakness, Seton Hall, like personnel-wise. Rutgers' weakness is they only have three bigs on the whole roster on scholarship, and only one of those bigs is a proven Big Ten type of Big East caliber guy, and that's Miles Johnson, who's a five. He's not a four. So now you have Sandra with the four. I think he just remains a real mismatch, especially with Eugenio Marui gone, who was the guy who might have matched up with Sandro uh, and really couldn't even handle him last year. But uh, it's a, there's a real potential mismatch there. So I would just say that will be an X factor again because, like I said, he's a tough matchup. But I've been telling anyone who will listen that Sandro's gotten a lot better. Like he's the guy who is now – people have asked, who is the number two? Who is Powell's wingman? And I think he is. And if you ask anybody in the team, they would say he is. And so they ran the offense through him in Italy to give him a taste, you know, of a sneak preview of what the guy can do. Granted, the competition was inferior. But so I foresee him as an X factor all season long, but especially in that game where that matchup would seem to favor Seton all heavily in that spot. Well, I feel like I'm repeating myself here, Jerry. The tough schedule doesn't end there. 
We have a rematch to finish the home and home with another Big Ten powerhouse, Maryland. Finals week concludes on the 17th, and students will be on a winter break, kind of similar to how uh, Maryland's game last year was. With all the extra tickets sold, will that make up for the energy of what could be a lighter student section? I got to tell you, I think Seton Hall's ticket office has done a great job because that mini plan that they uh, that they put together, that, that uh, <coughs> Michigan State, Maryland, Villanova three-game mini plan has been a humongous hit. Michigan State and Villanova were going to be big sellers anyway. But I do feel like they're buoying the Maryland game, which, you know, falls in a weird time on a Thursday before Christmas after two or three days after final exams end. Last year, I was there, you know, in, in Xfinity in Maryland. And I tried to explain this, but it's hard if you're not in the arena. But, like, it was dead there. And, yeah, they drew 8,000. Maryland always draws. But no students. And it was, a, it was advantage Seton Hall. It was like a neutral court based on what Maryland's court is usually like. It's not really surprising that Turgeon wanted the rematch to be the same time of year. Uh, he's hoping to get that. But we'll see because the Seton Hall, because they have a largely local student base, does that help? It could, but I, I just feel like the mini plan, which my father, by the way, Pops Carino has one, and he just informed me he has the mini plan. So uh, the, people are buying this thing, and I do feel like they will get a very good crowd. So it won't be dead by any means. I think Maryland will have to face much more of a difficult home court, you know, visiting court than Seton Hall did last year. You, you know, you mentioned them before. You mentioned Q, but is the individual head-to-head matchup to watch here, Quincy versus Anthony Cowan? Well, Cowan is good. I think he's the second-best player in the Big Ten after, uh, after Cassius Winston, also a point guard. And, you know, McKnight did a great job on him last year. Sure, but, he, yeah, he's the engine that makes it go. And uh, Jalen Smith, their, their forward wing, was a sophomore who a lot of people thought was going to go to the NBA and a lot of the, uh, the draft, decided to come back. I guess he was projected as like a borderline second rounder. And so he's an all-Big Ten caliber guy too. So there's some big talent there. But, uh, yeah, Cowan's the engine that makes it go for sure. They're a point guard-driven team. They did a good job on him last year. So, you know, and he's, he's, he's not a big guard. And McKnight has made some big guard, some smaller guards vanish. So, yeah, that's another game where uh, – that's another matchup that – another game where Seton Hall matches up well with the best player on the other team. And so, yes, certainly the, 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 on paper it would seem to bode well for the Hall. But we'll see. Maryland's good, and they got a lot of talent. And, um, you know, I would expect another very good game. But, boy, you, you're, you're talking about all these big-time teams they're playing. If they, if they can win, you know, um, uh, I would say out of these 12, if they can go 9-3 and – they're going to be way up in the rankings, top 10, maybe top five. And they're going to be on the, on the path to the, the road that you need in March, which is Albany and Madison Square Garden. So this non-conference schedule is so important. And just going over it makes you just re- reinforces the fact that how much could be on the line if they bring their best at these games. Jerry, I could already hear Tom saying from your lips to God's ears, nine or 10 wins in the non-conference. <laughs> how, however, as we talk about all the talent against the opposing uh, teams that are coming in or that we travel to go face. It's a very daunting schedule. It would not be unrealistic if they potentially lost four to five games in total. And, you know, how is the casual fan support going to be if this team exits the non-conference at eight and five or God forbid seven and six? Well, it, so it, it'll be 12, I think it's 12 games. I think they're one short of the max. 
So it I'd would have, be. I'd have to double check. I thought it was third. I think we had another cupcake that we added in there after. after I think Mercury. they're one short. I think I think they I think they just they're one short of the max, which I noted. I thought was interesting because they, they uh you know because Powell could be in the hunt for DeHair's record scoring record, and uh, and he might they might play one game less than than I had anticipated when I made my calculations at the end of last season. But but whatever. If they lose four or five games, no, it depends on who the losses are to, and how they lose. You know, you have some. You have some nail-biting losses to some big-time teams. People can understand that the team's moving in the right direction. Yeah, you don't get you don't you might not get the quad quad one credit for losing a tough game, a one-possession game to Gonzaga in a neutral court, but you can gain. I believe I'm a firm believer in constructive losses in college basketball. So, so I it, you really it would I can't say this number of losses is bad. It depends on who they play in that tournament, of course and how the games go, but the potential certainly is there for them to come out of there, come out of the non-conference schedule really in great shape, and uh, that's, that's why you play these games. But I give Kevin a lot of credit because a lot of coaches would, not, would want, want nothing to do with this type of schedule. So they are, they're risking a little bit by playing these games. You're right, if they lose, if they lose five or six of them somehow, they, you know, yeah, you're risking a lot, but I don't foresee it. I think this team is too, too battle-tested. And uh, somewhere it'll be somewhere down the middle. It's not going to be twelve and zero. Otherwise, we'll be doing another podcast about making plans for the Final Four in uh, in late December. Uh, but they're too good to be. They're too good to to lose five or six games. So I, I'm I'm thinking nine and three, something like that. And that, and they do that, and they'll be in great shape. Well, just to set the record straight, you are correct. It is a total of twelve games in the non-conference. So would love to see it be ten or ten, nine or ten wins, based on your prediction. Yeah, ten. I mean, ten would be off the charts. Ten. They go ten and two. They're going to enter conference play ranked in the top five, even with two losses. Oh yeah. Well, the I mean, assuming those losses are to, well, whoever. Yeah. You. You. you if they. If they beat Oregon and, and play some. Okay. Play three legit teams in that tournament, and they're ten and two. Yeah, they'll be in the top five. That's my prediction. Okay. Well, we had a, a really challenging schedule last year. We didn't think it could be beat, and this year went over the top, but. Do you think we ever see as challenging an out-of-conference schedule like this with the Big East going to a 20 regular season game schedule next year when UConn returns? No. That's a great question, and I don't think – I think this is the last time you'll see a schedule like this. Uh, the added conference games will make will – make, the reason why the reason why the Big East and Seton Hall has taken this very seriously has pushed this play teams tough out of conference is because – you know, the concerns about the collective league RPI, you know, not having enough opportunities to, to get enough quad one and two wins. So, yeah, I, I think this is the last time you'll see a schedule like this. UConn's going to come in, and even if UConn is so-so, I don't foresee them ever being bad for any reasonable stretch under Dan Hurley. But even if they're so-so, you're still going to get a monster of a game in stores or maybe Hartford, depending on where they play you. And uh, you're still going to get one really tough game that you wouldn't have had. So, so and you're going to get a home game where there's going to be, you know, 3,000 UConn fans are going to come down. So, so you, yes, I think this is the last time you'll see it. Kevin's going to scale whoever the coach is. I assume we'll assume it's going to be Kevin for now, in case unless every team in the country comes calling for this hot coach, we can get into that. But whoever the coach is down the line, long term, for Seton Hall is going to take that UConn and 20 games into account, and yes, this will be the last time you see a schedule like this. No question in my mind. Good question for you. you. So you're expecting the UConn buses to make a return next year, huh? I mean, you remember what it was like, uh, and so yeah, 
Yeah, they'll be back. There's no question. People there have been dying for the. That's all they have. I mean, they, like it's similar to Rutgers, the football team is atrocity. And uh, the difference is, you know, UConn they know from being great, and so that fan base is very strong and very vibrant. And yeah, you'll see them, and it'll be annoying as hell, but they'll be there. All right, Jerry. So speaking of conference play and Kevin Willard, he normally has some harsh opinions on on the schedule when it first comes out. Did Seton Hall get a good draw this time around? Uh, probably not. Some of it's not the league's fault. Some of it is, you know, the the, the venue because you got to schedule around the Devils and Ice Capades or Disney on Ice. It's called now Disney on Ice, which is taking up a big critical chunks of the schedule. Uh, so no, I, I don't think they're. I don't think it's great that they open and close on the road. Uh, they did open and close at home last year. You know, these, this is the way, the flow of things. But uh, And they don't have three straight road games. They do have three straight home games. But uh, I don't think it's ideal that they don't have a lot of Saturday home games. Saturday is when you get your biggest crowd. It's when you get your most juice. They, they don't have, they barely have any Saturday home games in the conference. So Jerry, it's Jerry, not perfect. Do you opinion for a second? I mean, I, I wrote down a couple of notes on my sheet going into this question. I noticed a couple of things that I thought were highlights that Kevin used to pick on that I did not yeah, see the, as a consistent theme this time. There were no repeat opponents in consecutive weeks. We avoided right. Nova and St. John's in their on-campus arena. We didn't have any three games in six-day stretches. We only have twice back-to-back games on the road. I, I thought I thought we actually got a pretty good shake this time around. Well, so probably a better shake than they've gotten. But like, aren't four of the first six games on the road? That is correct, yes. So that's, that's the most critical part of any conference schedule is the, oh, the first stretch, right? Because that's when the tone is set. And so, yeah, I don't think that's ideal. So it's better, better than bad, but I wouldn't say it's good. But, yeah, they did get some they did get some favored team perks, like playing Nova and St. John's in the big arenas uh, for sure. But, yeah, it's, so it's okay. I don't think it will really be an issue. I don't think anything's laid on that silver platter for them either. Okay, Jerry, so the big question. What does it take for Seton Hall to avoid the annual January swoon? So what it's going to take is, I think, leadership from within because, you know, that's been the thing. So last year you had sort of a, a, a new a new group of leaders, right, after after that class had gone that kind of dominated the program. They didn't really handle that. They, they sort of got, I don't know, the head maybe was a little too big or a little overconfident. After that great start that they had, you know, they got a great non-conference last year. They got lucky to beat St. John's. So you had a little crash after that. But I do think there's a, there's good chemistry on this team, and people know their roles. I would expect the leadership to be better this year with a year under their belt. Two years ago, you had you had role role allocation issues. People who maybe didn't didn't understand what their roles were, and and I think that has been an issue in the past. So these things sort of manifest itself when you get in what's called the dog days of the season. You know. In the, in the midst of the conference schedule where consistency is the key. You might also have a theory that uh, the ebb and flow of things is Kevin Kevin's offense, the what he runs, you know, at a conference succeeds, and then league coaches, they know it, so they're ready for it. So Kevin then has to counter-adjust midway through the season. I think that's sort of been a pattern we've seen. If you look at Seton Hall's offensive numbers, they've dipped pretty significantly it hasn't always usually been their defense. The defense is usually pretty consistent. It's been their offense that has struggled. So, yeah, there's a few factors there. It's definitely been a theme. You know, Willard knows it's a theme. And the players know they've learned the lesson. Or they know the lesson from two years ago, which is no matter how, you, how good you are, two, 
two bad weeks, you know, a two-week funk, mailing in two or three games will get you knocked down from a four seed to an eight seed. And that's exactly what happened two years ago. That team was way better than a round of 32 team, but they screwed themselves into playing Kansas in Kansas because they checked out for two weeks in late January and early February. So I do think this team will have learned those lessons. They do have a leader in Miles Powell that that group just did not have two years ago. And so I don't think it'll happen again, but it's happened so regularly over the years that until it doesn't happen, I can understand the skepticism that it might. Jerry, you brought up an interesting, a bunch of interesting points, to be honest, but one of them stood out to me because it's now a repetitive theme that we've heard on this podcast specifically. We had J.P. Pelsman on uh, to start the beginning of the summer, and he said, hey, during the non-conference, it kind of catches the other teams by surprise, you know, Seton Hall system, offensive game plan, whatever you want to call it, but that kind of feel like Kevin gets out-scouted or out-coached sometimes uh, by the Big East competition that sees it over and over again he just has to kind of see how he integrates his new players into his his standard material and you kind of just basically brought up that same point what what do they have to do to technically change that tom and i have always said kevin likes to play a lot of high pick and roll basketball and in order for the offense to flow with that type type of you know system either miles gonna have to be more on the ball or anthony nelson's gonna have to run the point more consistently do you agree or disagree yeah, so you brought up an interesting quandary that they have, right? They run the high pick and roll, and that's the base offense. And yes, I do. We do all seem to. We do think the conference coaches know it well, and they know how to defend it. So there's some moves and counter moves in terms of adjustments that have to be made. But sure, I mean, one of the reasons why they, they're so devoted to that offense is because they haven't had they haven't had a break you down off the dribble point guard, you know, since Whitehead. So can Anthony Nelson be that guy? They want him to. They want him to be that guy. And he's gotten better, but he has to hold up his end of the bargain on defense. So if you're Kevin, you have these, you have this interesting quandary, right? You have Nelson, who's clearly the best pure point guard, break a team down off the dribble, get in the lane, make people collapse, and that can you can now spread the floor, spread the floor, especially with Sandro as a stretch four. You can spread the floor and do that with him, and you know maybe you know maybe not, maybe just give a team some different looks. But you also have Miles Powell, who's going to have the ball in his hands some, especially in early offense situations. And then you have McKnight, who's going to have to be out on the floor because, uh, for critical stretches because they need his defense. So I don't know. That's why Kevin gets paid millions of dollars. I told him this. This is what <laughs> you know. we talked about. This is, he has to make hard decisions on, on his personnel coupling, especially in the backcourt. They, they, they would seem to have the personnel this year where they can do different things. You know, they're not as throw the ball in the post and out with Angel and they're not as reliant on, they shouldn't just be reliant on running Powell off screens to get him shots. Like they should be able to do different things. So we'll see. Uh, but yeah, that's going to be like a next level thing. And they, they do envision Nelson adding that. So I would, he's definitely going to play more. And they do see him as the as the point guard of the future. But if he comes along this year, you know, continues to come along and maybe is is ready, like what you saw in the Big East tournament final against Villanova, then yes, you you might see different looks. In which case, that could help them avoid the swoon. But yeah, we all know you watch enough basketball, you know it's the, you know what they're what they're going to do, Seton Hall. I mean, they've been running the same thing consistently. So Jerry, give us a prediction for Seton Hall's Big East record, and where do you think that puts them in the standings? So, you know, you pick a team to finish first in the league, that's assumed that they're going to probably go 13-5 and five or 14-4. and four. I mean, that's what you would expect from a, from a first-place team. I, I do think they're the best team 
I think they're better with Villanova than Villanova with all Villanova's new parts and with Brian Antoine hurt and out for who knows how long. And he's really, really good, guys. Saw him play quite a bit in high school. But, you know, he's he's going to have been out for, for six months at least. Um, so the whole thing with Seton Hall this year is to not have any of the strange hiccups, the DePaul hiccups that maybe have hurt them in the past, like the little swoons as you alluded to. They'll have some, they'll have some tough games, you know, with Villanova twice, Xavier, Providence will be tough, but 14 and four, 13 and five. That's what you would expect from a, from a, the number one team in the league, right? At, at least I don't think anyone's going to go. No one's going 16 and two this year in the big East. It's not going to happen. So you look at a 14 and four, 13 and five, you added nine and three against that powerhouse non-conference schedule. And now you're talking about a team with the top four seed in the NCAA tournament. And now you're talking about placement in Albany in the East region at Madison square garden. And that's the, that's the formula for Seton Hall to do something special. With the balance of power in the Big East, I've seen some predictions where people think six to seven teams can get into the NCAA tournament. Could it be a 12-6 and six that actually wins the regular season? I guess it could. You've seen, you've seen teams stacked in the standings before. I don't think it will. It just, it just seems like it's, it's a low number to win the league. It's certainly theoretically possible. Probably a mathematician or like a Ken Palm could answer that better than me. But I would think you'd have to go 13 and five or 14 and four. And here, here's one thing about the Big East, about winning the regular season title that needs to be emphasized here, is that that's so much more important than the Big East tournament. The Big East tournament is great for fans. It's great for buzz. It's a booby prize when it comes to the NCAA tournament. You're exerting a lot of energy, and you're not getting much for it as far as seed. I mean, the, the committee ignores it basically you saw what has happened the last couple of years so the committee just ignores it and and values the regular season which you know maybe they're right maybe they're right to do that i don't know the regular season certainly is more, probably more of an indicator of a team's overall resume and quality but it's so much more important to win the regular season title and that's the big east regular season champion is going to be in albany and is going to be in the east region and so that's what it's really all about and i, I i'm not going to say that no one is ever going to not try to win the Big East tournament, but it is of such secondary importance at this point. It would not be the worst thing in the world for a team to just rest, lose in the Big East tournament and rest up and go for the big dance, which is really, that's what it's about at this point with this program. But the regular season is where it's at. So 14-4, and 13-5 means no bad funks, no crazy hiccups. You know, you got to play consistently good basketball. This team seems to have the makeup for that. Well, Jerry... We don't let our guests leave the show without walking the plank. We give you five rapid-fire questions. We're looking for five rapid-fire answers. I'm walking. All right, here we go. Question number one, best SHU game you've ever covered? The best SHU game I've ever covered. Wow. Uh, I would say the uh, the Big East tournament final against Villanova, and with 1A in the regular season would be the uh, the game against Pittsburgh at home, the double overtime game in the Meadowlands in 04. Question two. Games. Any sports personality to interview past or present, who would it be? I would love to have had an interview with Muhammad Ali, really the person who made, made sports personality what it is today. That would be something else. Any sporting event you could cover, what would it be? World Cup. When the World Cup comes to comes to the United States in 2026, it'll
It'll be in Jersey. It'll be in Philly. I will be there with a press pass. Best opposing player you have seen live versus SHU? Boy, there have been some big-time guys. That's a great question. I mean, Ben Gordon comes to mind because he had so many great games against Seton Hall. He was such a great collegian. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody big. But uh, that, that Ben Gordon jumps out at me. He's an incredible player. One of the all-time biggest greats. Final question. Best Seton Hall player you've ever seen play? Oh, it's, it's definitely it's Terry DeHair. But I'm telling you this right now. That answer could change in this season. I think Powell's close. And I don't think it's – I'm not speaking for Seton Hall. I don't think it's out of the question that they could retire his jersey in the last game. Congratulations, Jerry. You have walked the plank. So, so Jerry, you... <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still, I'm still with us. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, it's funny you bring that up. You know, when I was a freshman, you were at school, and they decided that they were going to retire Terry's number during uh, one of the last games. I remember that was a big, big deal for the school. I, I can see that happening again. I just want to emphasize: no one has told me that's going to happen. I'm not reporting that. But I just think it's it's within the realm of possibility. Does it, does it hurt so, that because it's he, a Thursday night game? I, I I know it's Villanova. It'd be the perfect atmosphere to do it. It's it's a no, weeknight Thursday game, though. No, I don't think it, that matters. I will tell you this, and I already mentioned this. They should give – Powell should have a microphone. No no senior night player has spoken since Andre Barrett in 04. He's the last one to speak to the crowd. Powell should absolutely have a microphone that night, no matter what. Well, Jerry, we want to thank you for spending some time with us. We really appreciate your insights. Thanks, guys. Have me on any time, and it's going to be fun. I mean, it's already, I already got the juices flowing through my veins, as I'm sure you do. Jerry Carino, everybody. Okay, Mike, we've just talked schedule with Jerry Carino. Now it's time. Put our money where our mouth is and figure out what we think is going to happen this year. I'll tell you what I think. This team is not as talented or as deep as the 92 team. It's not top-heavy talented as 2000 or 2016, but it, what it may be is deep enough, big enough, and older enough to ride on the back of a transcendent talent to have a successful season, a deep run in the Big East Tournament, and follow it up with a big, deep run in the NCAA tournament. I'm going to tell you this, Mike. We beat Nova in Philly this year. We win the Big East regular season for the first time since 92-93. And we at least make the Big East tournament finals. And we finally make that deep run into the NCAA tournament under Willard. Why? <laughs> because if not now, Mike... When? I, I'm not ready to give you my prediction yet. I, if, if we beat Nova in Philly. You, you, We're I'll, I'll buy Nova I'll, in Philly this I, year, Mike. I'll, I'll buy cheesesteaks. I buy the cheesesteaks if we beat Nova in Philly. I, I think they're going to accomplish a lot of the same things you just said. But before I give you my final take on what the, the outlook looks like from a record wins and losses perspective, I want to do some player accomplishments. I mean, there are a lot of projections of what players can be. Let's throw some names out there and make some predictions relative to that. Does a guy like Samuel make the Big East all-rookie team? I, I'm going to say this. Miles Powell, at 10 points a game his freshman year, did not make that team. And the question will be, will Willard give him enough time to actually get there? I'm going to say no. I think Willard's going to pick his spots with him. I think he's going to be really successful. I think he's going to show flashes. I don't think he puts enough in the hole and gets enough dent in PT to get there. 
I, I will agree and say no as well. I, I don't think his numbers are going to jump off the page to the casual beat writer that will ultimately vote on that at the end of the season. I think he will contribute this year and fans will be pleasantly surprised, but I don't think he's going to jump off the page and win an all rookie spot. I, you have to be someone who is in your team's starting lineup. You almost have to average double digits. You just said miles average double digits and you didn't even get a sniff. So I, I am with you. I'm going to say no. I think some of the Uber hype guys kind of, you know, get the nod if their numbers kind of back up. So I will say no on Samuels for the all rookie team. How about we talked about breakout for Jared Roden. Do you see him possibly winning a most improved player in the Big East? This is going to be dependent on how he comes back from that injury. How, what What is really going to be the effect of that bum ankle on him? I mean, he's still not cleared to practice with any kind of contact. Is that going to slow him down? Is Willard going to slowly bring him into the rotation? or and, Or when the trainer says he's good to go, boom, he's in. I'm going to just say no. I don't know how fast he's going to come back. I don't know how much that's going to be a lingering issue. I'm going to say yes. I think if he is healthy, he will be the Big East most improved player. This is not about a guy who then is going to make a second team all Big East, but I think he will get most improved. All right, (laughs) moving to the next one. So Quincy McKnight, Big East defensive player of the year. He should have won it last year. He put a hurting on Marcus uh, Howard. I don't care what the final point totals for Marcus Howard's games were against us. He was ineffective. He should have won it last year. He's going to win it this year. Didn't LJ Figueroa win it last year? I believe so. Isn't Figueroa back again this year? Yeah. And and Figueroa, you know, he's, I I think he got it more because he gets a few of those big, exciting blocks that you don't care about, Mike. Bingo. Bingo. This is all about style points. So I, I absolutely believe that Q deserved it last year. I think if he duplicates what he did he deserves it again this year my vote will be no i don't think he's flashy enough uh to get the votes for it and that's not that's not right but i say no well, let, let's just let's just go down where, where we should be focusing on miles powell big east player of the year will he back up the preseason prediction let's go back a few months when we had jp pelsman on we asked him this and he said if marcus howard returns he's probably the favorite because that's just how it works however a funny thing happened over the summer mike it seemed that Miles Powell became this darling of the media world. Every what he's getting photos plastered everywhere. Everything he does is is amplified. I think Miles Powell wins it. I think he does too. I I thought he deserved it last year over Howard. I I think he's going to be that good this year. I think he will find a way to take his game to yet another level. And Howard, he's probably not the darling anymore because he ran his two best players out of town. <laughs> well, I mean, look, this, this, this is not a, this is not the segment supposedly. to be talking about we don't that. Have but any inside information supposedly well, ran him out of town. But it's easier to get behind a player like Powell in the media and say all the positive things relative to maybe what's going on behind the scenes in Marquette. So I think he backs it up. I think he takes his game to another level. I think it's a special season, and therefore he earns everything that's been coming to him. So sticking with Miles Powell, does he make first team All-American? This is a huge ask. He would need to have an otherworldly year, and the team would need to at least win the Big East tournament. You fail in one of those, and I don't think it happens. I mean, we're talking, you know, some crazy season uh, individually and the team rolling with it. it it's not going to happen if one doesn't happen. I kind of agree. 
I, I think the answer is a yes, because I do believe he's going to be Biggie's player of the year. And I don't think he wins Biggie's player of the year without that team success. So if the team has success and he wins Biggie's player of the year, I think he's backed up the expectations for being first team All-American. The question is, if they can take it to another level, you're talking about Biggie's regular season, Biggie's tournament title, deep run in the NCAA, does he get national player of the year consideration? Let, let, let me just give you a, a comparison. And I know it's not apples to apples, but bear with me here, okay? Terry DeHarris' senior season was for the ages. He led in two-point shots made, in three-point shots made, in free-throw shooting. He won Big East Player of the Year. He was first-team Big East for a third straight season. He broke school and conference scoring records. And he made second team All American. There was not a more dominant season for a Seton Hall player. And during a time when the Big East had a higher reputation than it does right now, second team All American. Now, uh, obviously, there's a lot of things that go into that. Who else was, you know, out there in the NCAAs? It's a huge ask. I don't know that it happens if both of those things don't happen. All right, I'll throw you a hypothetical for what it might take for him to become National Player of the Year. And I know this is pipe dream type stuff here, but Andy Katz, jumping on the Seton Hall train again, said that there's a possibility in his eyes they could get a one seed. If they got a one seed, it I, I said it was a pipe dream. Don't roll your eyes at me. He's conference on the payroll. I'm telling you. If they got a one seed... They would have had to accomplish everything else across the board that we talked about. They get a one seed. Does he get national player of the year? I don't think it's, it's, he's a sexy enough pick. Can I, I, can I compare it to someone like Jameer Nelson when he did it back uh, in the day? I don't know, man. Jameer, that, that's a, I don't know if that's a valid uh, comparison. Jameer Nelson had the ball in his hands all the time. He ran the point. I mean, but he was a point guard and, and he was, he it, was next. I, I to me, know. it's the it's I'm the sitting here stammering because Jameer's Nelson's senior season was that good. Yeah, and that's my point. And he was from a program but, but, that but is, is similar again, in stature to ours. Otherworldly. No, no, no. For one, Saint. No, no, no. Saint Joe's is not of any sort of stature next to ours. Okay. <laughs> let let stop that. Stop. The A10 teams are not in the Big East level, even in this week in Big East. National stop stage. Stop national. That. Re- national. No. The people. The people on the West no. Coast still say Seton who. No, and, that's and so, fine. No, no, no. Saint Joe's people are still thinking it's a Metuchen. Okay. <laughs> he would have to be otherworldly. I mean, and that's, you know, I and I don't have stats. I don't have some numbers to throw it. Jameer Nelson was all around the ball. It seemed like he was grabbing every steal he needed to. He grabbed rebounds when he needed to. He was scoring when he needed to. I mean, it was next level stuff. If Miles Powell gets to that next level stuff and brings his team into the tournament, and I know they announced most of this stuff prior to the Final Four, he it needs to be otherworldly. All right, so, so it's probably a no for both of us, but we're holding out the pipe dream hope that a beyond magical season takes place, and, and he possibly could. Well, okay, I think that's fair. All right, team accomplishments, you gave me your take before. I will kind of piggyback now. I will say, yes, I think they are the Big East regular season conference champs. Do they win the Big East tournament? 
I don't know. That's that's like it's like the NCAA tournament. I think it's a crapshoot. I would be disappointed if they didn't make it to the finals of the Big East tournament because if you're the one seed now, you should get an easy matchup and you should get a lesser matchup in the semifinals in order to kind of get back to the Big East title game. So I'll say Big East title matchup. I, I can't predict if they, you know, if they win the whole thing. That was an interesting team in 92-93 that blew out Syracuse by 30. I don't know if we're that good to run anybody out at that level of play by 30 points. NCAAs, do, do I have to give the cliche of it's all about matchups? I mean, they, they could be a one seed for all I, I care and have a, have a bad matchup in an 8-9 game in the second round. They, they just could. Does this team have elite eight potential? Yes, would I be disappointed if they don't make it to the second weekend? I think the entire fan base is starved for this team to get back, this program to get back to the second weekend. So I will set that as the bar. I absolutely think it has the potential. It could be a magical run to the final four. We just don't know. The NCAA tournament is an animal you know, unto itself. You just don't know how things are going to break. You don't know who's going to get hot. But the sky's the limit for this team if it gets to that point and it's playing well. Michael, who am I to argue with Seton Hall great Mark Bryant? I am going for the lead eight. I think this team is built in such a way that it could weather different storms. It could play different styles. Uh, you know, we really didn't talk about it, but the only question mark is going to be three-point shooting outside of the Mileses. But I think this team has got a lead eight potential. I think they make it there. Okay, so I'll, before we kind of wrap this up, I want to kind of piggyback on that concept of the three-point shooting. I think that's an unknown for the entire country this year. The fact that the line got moved back, we just don't know how everyone's going to adjust. And I know people want to point to the fact that we struggled outside of Miles Powell to be a good three-point shooting team. And consistent how can we... three-point shooting team. Well, I mean, good, consistent, however you really want to put it. You know, there. besides Miles, you didn't have the confidence of others to shoot it. Yes, Kale on a certain night, you know, was was red hot, but not consistent. We don't know how anybody else is going to adjust their game. Does that mean that the three-point line being a little bit further back opens up the lanes for people to attack more? That might be a strength for us. We got some athletic guys that can take the ball off the dribble. This line being moved back, maybe we're not a better three-point shooting team, but maybe it opens the floor for more space and makes us a better team overall. I think you also made a point of, hey, you know, maybe we don't, we have a bad matchup, but you said we have versatility. Maybe because of that versatility, we don't necessarily have a bad matchup because we can adjust based on that depth. So therefore, maybe we are going to be a more nimble team, a more versatile team, a team that Willard can, I dare say, coach to an elite eight. Elite eight or bust, Mike. That's what we're saying. All right, I'm in. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Donald Copeland, Desi Rodriguez, Angel Delgado, and Jerry Walker. For Tommy Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 